Thank you so much. Thank you, Scott. God bless you. Thank you, choir. Thank you, Doug. That was tremendous, wasn't it? Uh, I, the only way that could have been better, Doug, if you had done it before the offering. Okay, that would have been even better just before the offering. That's tremendous. What a great name, Emmanuel. Great reality, great promise. Come to think of it, not a bad name for a church either, right? <laughs> Emmanuel. Excited for us to be entering a season where we are reminded of that truth, but that truth is for every day, right? I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you always. It's amazing. Thank you. I want you to look at the Gospel of John with me this morning. <clears throat> Gospel of John. Chapter 4, if you turn there, the Gospel of John, chapter 4, if you want you to make sure somehow that you are looking at a copy of God's Word, have your Bible or use the Bible that's provided, it's page 888, a good, good page number, eight's the number of eternity, really, so 888, but either using a phone or your device, just really believe this is an important, important time for us to just make sure we see what God wants us to see in his word. John chapter 4. The United States of America. The United States of America. Not as much this Sunday as last Sunday. Still 50 states. I think we're barely hanging on to some of them. Talks of secession. Maybe we could say the divided states of America. And I want you to understand when I say divided states, that's not red and blue states. Not red and blue, but through and through. Divided states. You may not know it, but we had an election this week. <clears throat> really, <clears throat> pardon me, nothing, nothing changed. Same states, same population, minus a few that have passed this week, plus more that have been born this week. Really nothing changed. But in reality, in many ways, everything changed. Everything changed. This week, for many, everything has changed. This week, now, this weekend, marriages divided, Homes divided, families divided, family reunions for many may not be the same again. Weddings divided, gatherings to see two people join will be plagued, I think, with division in a unique way. 
schools divided, classrooms divided, offices divided. Anybody know that? Churches divided. Some churches this day are having services and things are being shared in celebration regarding that election. Some churches are having services of mourning related to that election. Sunday school classes divided, small groups divided, many people leaving a church or a group, Sunday school class, and not coming back. We had an election. And suddenly, things that were political and philosophical have now become quite personal. Millions of our fellow citizens are saying things like this. How could you vote for that racist, narcissistic, misogynist, arrogant bully? And millions more perhaps might be saying, how could you vote for that socialistic, pro-abortion, anti-marriage, anti-family, arrogant bully? Citizens on both sides, colleagues on both sides, Christians, born-again Christians on both sides. That election did not mean the same thing to everyone who is born again by the Spirit of God. So the question, what should be our response? What should be our responsibility? Well, well, there is no way I would presume to tell you my view on how you should respond, your responsibility. That would be the epitome of arrogance itself. But I will tell you what we should do, always do, is to refocus. And the only way you can refocus with true clarity is to focus on the one shining fixed point in this creation, and that is the bright and morning star, Jesus Christ. Amen. That's where focus comes from. You can get completely out of focus through political loyalty. The best way to focus is to focus on the light, focus on Jesus. And this morning, I want us to do this. I want us to read this passage and I want us to look at the example of Jesus. I believe, as I've prayed about this, struggled with it, 
changed my sermon. It, it felt way too much like a Saturday night special as I was working on this late into the night. There are times pastors have to do Saturday night specials. I've done just enough, enough of them not to enjoy it. But this one is, it's been really in my heart to try to say this is what we should focus on because we look at Jesus. We will look at Jesus. Now in this chapter, I want us to look at Jesus and I think it will help us refocus as Christians in the midst of new realities that are emerging for us in our culture in which we live. Not everyone here is a Native American. Everyone here is American citizen. You know what? We're in a place where that doesn't matter at all. We're here under God. And here is how the Son of God lived in circumstance very similar to what we are in, I believe. Follow along. John chapter 4. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Samaria. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour or noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband, 
What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Uh, our, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is a spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and are coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say there are yet four months and then come the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. We need to focus on Jesus. Let's look at Jesus. I want you to see Jesus here. See Jesus living in the midst of cultural division. To appreciate this story, you have to understand the cultural landscape. Unless you understand the, the backdrop, the cultural landscape, this story, it really does not take its full and complete import to your heart. The Jews and the Samaritans, listen, the Jews and the Samaritans lived on the same planet 
but they were not in the same world. They lived on the same planet, but they were not in the same world. The chasm between them was centuries in the making. 750 years to be exact. 750 years. Because in 722 BC, the Assyrians invaded the land of Israel. They took captive the 10 northern tribes of the 12 tribes of Israel. They took captive 10 of the 12 tribes, carried them away as slaves but left just a few to take care of the land. And then the Assyrians brought refugees from the other countries and planted them in the land of Israel. And so over a period of time, these people of Israel, the 10 tribes that were left, and these refugees that had been brought in by the Assyrians, they began to intermarry. Over a period of time, that intermarriage led to an interfaith. It was a faith that was part pagan and part Judaism. It was a a synthesis of paganism and Judaism, and the people became known as the, the Samaritans. They built something at this very city. Hundreds of years before. You know what they built? They built a rival temple to the temple in Jerusalem. And established their own religion. Based loosely on the teachings of Moses. And their own system of priesthood. And their own system of sacrifice. And it stood there for decades and decades and decades. Until 200 years before this event the high priest of the people of Israel, the high priest, John Hycranus, led an assault on the city of Sychar, an assault on Samaria, and tore the rival temple down stone by stone. The mutual hatred that the Samaritans had For the Jews and the Jews for the Samaritans was even greater than their mutual hatred for the Romans, their conquerors. And that hatred was so deep it was based on and fueled by religion. It was not just political, it was religious the the religion of the Pharisees and the religion of the Samaritans was very different. The religion of the Samaritans, we could say that was a theological, theological liberalism because they only believed part of the scriptures. They didn't believe all of the, what we call the Old Testament. Only the writings of Moses were authoritative to them. And they created their own ritual and religion to suit them. They really... It, represented theological liberalism but Judaism represented at this time of Jesus theological legalism they had the scriptures 
but they had added layer and layer and layer and layer of man-made rules and regulations and rituals which were not part of God's word and they placed them on a burden on themselves and on others and the religion of both was supposed to be under God. Under Jehovah God. Were these two religions that were in reality rooted in pride and fueled by hate. Now that was the society into which Jesus was born. That was the society into which he entered his ministry at the age of 30. And what did Jesus do? He determined that he would not be defined by his culture. He determined that he would be counter-cultural. Because he is on his father's mission. You see, when you're on, your, on the mission of your father, your mission here on earth is not determined by political powers or external religious powers, but by God himself. Now, I want you to see, here's Jesus living in the midst of cultural division and watch him live on mission. This is very, very amazing. And this is how we begin to get refocused. What does that mean? What, what are the qualities of living on mission in the midst of a culture that is completely, radically divided? Well, notice what Jesus did. He lived on mission and he lived on mission intentionally. He was intentional. Did you notice verses three and four? Look back at that if you would. Verses three and four, he left Judea. He departed from departed again for Galilee. So he's in the south and he's headed back north toward home. And he had to pass through Samaria. Notice that he had to pass through Samaria. Now that had to is not geographical. He did not have to go through Samaria. As a matter of fact, practically no Jews went through Samaria. They went over the Mount of Olives. They went down to the Jordan Valley Rift. They went up the Jordan. And when they'd get up to the north, they would cross over the Valley of Jezreel to go into Galilee. That's the way people went. The quicker way was to go on the Judean hill trails straight to Galilee. But if you did that, you had to go through Samaria. It says Jesus had to go through Samaria. That's not, a, that's not geographical. That is spiritually. He was compelled. He was compelled to go through. He was intentional. I'm going through Samaria. Now his decision wasn't comfortable. Uh, this, he, he, he's leaving him. He's leaving his neighborhood to another hood. These people are different people. They're not really going to be excited to see you coming through. 
They may tolerate it. But you be very careful if you go through there and the sun goes down. They don't think like you do. They don't act like you do. Believe like you believe. It's not comfortable. But he's under compulsion. Interesting, the Father's will doesn't let you always do the comfortable thing. But notice the circumstances were very natural. Now notice, as he's intentional, it's very natural. What do I mean by that? He's been walking for miles. It's mid-September. He's thirsty. So in a very natural way, he goes, where does he go? He goes to the city waterworks. Where's that? He goes to the well. Jacob's well. Now note that. He's living very intentionally. This is intentional, but it's very natural. It's not weird, strange, odd. It's natural, but it's intentional. But living on mission is always intentional and it's always something else. Listen carefully. It is always relational. You cannot live on mission for God and not live a relational life. It's very relational. Now notice where he goes. He goes to the most public place. Goes to the city well. And the most public of persons comes there. This woman. Now stop here for a moment. Right now, at that well, every man-made barrier you can imagine has just gone up. Same well, two people, but a wall, walls, man-made like granite, are between them. There's barriers of sex. He is a male. She's a female. Even in a public setting, individually, it just wasn't done. For one man, one woman, not his wife, to talk together, it's just not done. There's a wall of status. This is a rabbi. He is wearing a rabbi's shawl. He is a man of God. And she is a woman with a story. That's the reason she's there at noon. It's very significant. It's noon. Women don't come to the well. At noon. They come early in the morning. Why is she coming at noon? Because if she comes at noon, she won't have to face the other women of the city and the ridicule that she will experience from them. Now note how Jesus just crosses all those barriers. Now notice. Human, man-made barriers of sex, status, race, religion... Jesus doesn't care. 
Notice how he crosses those man-made barriers. Notice he, cro- he crosses them proactively. Proactively. Guess what? He could have just sat there in silence and it would have been awkward and deafening, but it would have been expected. He takes the initiative. He breaks the silence. And notice he's not just proactive as he's relational. Notice he's very personable. He's he's personally crossing barriers here. He's being friendly. He he speaks first and he he speaks in a nice way to this lady. He's, He's friendly to this woman who is a sinner. He's the friend of sinners. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad he's that way? Aren't you glad that Jesus wasn't waiting until we straightened our act up? Until he came to us. And notice he expresses humility. Do you notice this? He expresses humility. He puts himself in a sense beneath her. Would you please give me a drink of water? Could I have a drink? He exposes himself to the possibility of rejection. He he takes the first step and there is the very real potential and probably be too expected that he's going to be rejected in this conversation. What? I don't think so. Sit there and be thirsty, Jew. Very... Probable that that's not what's going to happen. But what's his goal? His goal, listen, his goal is to start a conversation. To start a dialogue. And so where does he start? Does he start by pulling out the scroll of Isaiah and reading it to her? Does he, does he start with the Ten Commandments? Does he start there? No, where does he start? Where does he start? He starts by talking about the most common thing that unites them. What's brought them together so far? Water. That's all they have in common. They're both human beings and they're both thirsty. They need water and that's where Jesus starts. And she says, how can you be asking me for a Jew, asking me for a drink? And there's his bridge. Oh, we're talking. Well, if you knew who it was that was speaking to you, you would ask of him water. And he would give it to you. He started a dialogue. He started a conversation. He's he's piquing her her interest just a, a little bit. He's very relational. He's very intentional. But he's very relational. But now here he's making his transition. See, can you see what he's doing? Water, thirst. Let's talk about spiritual water, spiritual thirst. And now he's missional. He's intentional. He's relational. But in a very natural way, he's missional with his message. He begins to share into this woman's life. Now listen to the, his conversation. 
Number one, notice this. He expresses truth. He expresses truth. He's not going to tell her, I'm okay, you're okay. That would be a lie. He's not going to tell her, God understands. It's okay, it's not okay, and he doesn't understand. That's not what, God, what he's going to do. He speaks truth, but notice, he speaks truth about her empty life. He wants her, he, he's going to focus on that emptiness that's in her. So when she, he, she says, where are you going to get this water? I, you know, I don't want to come here and draw. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you, go get your husband. Whoa, I don't have a husband. That's right. You've had five husbands. The man you're living with now. He's not your husband. You've spoken the truth that you have no husband. Now, why does she not have a husband? She doesn't have a husband because if she doesn't have a man, she doesn't have a way to live. You just don't live as a woman on your own in this culture. You either starve or you beg or you do what you gotta do to feed yourself and your family. This is an abused woman. This is a woman that's been abused by a male-dominated, sex-driven society. She's used up. And immediately, this is uncomfortable for her. And so she wants to change the subject. And so what's she change the subject to? Religion. Did you notice this? Well, she talks to religion. Whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, you, you Jews say only in Jerusalem you, you can worship. And we worship here. You all think you know it. You think you're the great custodians of truth. You, only you've got the answer. When we are living at the place that our father Jacob lived, this is his well. We are followers of God too. That's, that's what's all in this message. So Jesus speaks truth to her about not just about her life that's empty, but about her religion that's empty. And Jesus is very truthful. And he says, listen, it's not about a place. I'm telling you. It's neither in Jerusalem nor here that people have to worship God. It's not about a place. But he said, I am going to tell you this. You don't know what you're worshiping. The God you think you're worshiping, you don't know. Salvation is from the Jews. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, in effect, in a very kind way, but very, very clearly, truth is not relative. You don't have Samaritan truth and Jewish truth. They can't both be true. Truth is not relative. Salvation is from the Jews. But then he moves from truth to hope. And what's the hope? The truth is there is a God. 
He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His message of salvation has come to you through the Jewish people. And guess what? That God is seeking you. He's seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. And that God is not limited to you worshiping him on a spot on the earth or here. He is seeking people who will know him and worship him for who he is with all their hearts. God's doing that. That's the word of hope. He expresses hope. He doesn't just come and say, you're wrong in your lifestyle and you're wrong in your beliefs. You've corrupted the law of God and you've corrupted the religion of God. Repent. No. He says, you're thirsty. You're seeking satisfaction where it can't be found and you're on the wrong path. That path's not gonna lead you to the God that you think you serve but I'm here to tell you, God's seeking you. He touches her deepest longing. Her deepest longing is to know God. She knows God can't be pleased with the way things are around her or in her. And, and touches that. And she says, well, one thing I know I've heard the Messiah is coming, the Christ is coming, and when he comes, he's going to help us understand all these things. I, I can't argue with you about religion. Uh, you know more about the Bible than I do, but I do know that when he comes, he'll tell us what we need to know. And then what does Jesus express? He expressed truth, he expressed hope, and then he expressed grace. I who speak to you am he. He reveals himself. You're looking for Messiah. You're waiting for Messiah. Guess what? Messiah has come looking for you. Messiah has brought you water, not just for your empty water jug, but for your empty heart. I've come for you. In a moment, you know what happened? This lady became a missionary. In a moment. She didn't know you couldn't do it. No one told her you're not allowed until you've taken a class. No one told her that you've got to learn the, the, the journey. You've got to learn the, the points. You, you've got to learn the presentation. You've got to learn the inductive question. And well, you probably need to have a Bible college degree or really be better if you go to seminary before you're a missionary. Nobody told her. She didn't know. She just knew in a moment of time, I have met the Messiah. He, he has told me everything I've ever done. He's come to me. Guess what? Jesus won. Jesus won. He won what he was seeking. Jesus won what he was seeking. Jesus wasn't seeking to win a cultural war. He wasn't seeking to win 
a public dialogue and debate. He wasn't seeking to win an election. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. He was seeking souls. And he won. That's what Jesus is about. That's how Jesus changes a city by reaching a soul. That's how Jesus changes a community by reaching a soul. That's how Jesus changes a country and a world through reaching souls. He does it from the inside out. Because that's the problem. The problem's not the economy. The problem's not capitalism or socialism. The problem is not various expressions of rights and privileges. That's not the problem. The problem is not global warming. It is a problem. The problem is not socioeconomic. Oh, those are problems. The problem is every human being has a hole in his or her heart. And only God can fill that hole. And what he does, that person becomes his image bearer. And goes back and says, I have found him or he has found me. You've got to meet him. The woman that went to that well was not the same woman that left that well. His disciples needed to see that. And his disciples today need to see that. We need to see faces. Faces like this. This is the face of Rosaria Champagne, PhD from Ohio State University, full professor at Syracuse University, who teach, who taught English, women's studies, and specialized in queer theory. But an elderly man had the kindness when he'd seen her on television expressing her views on queer theory. He had the kindness to say, would you be interested in a cup of coffee to talk about that? She said, yes. Would it be okay to bring my wife? Yes. And so they talked. She didn't change at all. But he asked if you'd like to come over for a meal. She said, yeah. She came over. They talked more about their views. They shared meals together. And you know what? He and his wife became her friend. Not a friend trying to leverage friendship in a deceiving way, but a real friend who loved her just as she was. And caused the most natural thing in the world for them to do with someone who they considered a friend was to spend time and talk and have meal and invite her to church. 
And so this professor of queer theory went with them to the Lutheran church. And the most amazing thing happened over a period of time. She found in the most unusual way, it kind of sneaked up on her that she did believe in Jesus. And she became a follower of Jesus. Let me, let me show you another lady. This lady. You say, Sam, that's the same lady. <laughs> oh, no, no, it's not the same lady. You see, first lady was Rosaria Champagne. This is Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. Because now she goes to college campuses with her PhD in English and women's studies and all the experience in queer theory and she tells her story about how she was the most unlikely convert you could imagine. And her name's changed now because she married a Mr. Butterfield, uh, should say a Reverend Butterfield. She's now a pastor's wife. It's wonderful. He's a Presbyterian, but still wonderful. <laughs> Woman at the well. Empty. Used up. Filled up with Jesus. A woman at the well of education, the well of knowledge, but empty, now filled up with Jesus. I want you to see Jesus very quickly here. Notice Jesus shares this. His, his disciples have to see it. Jesus shares this vision. He sees it, now they need to see it. What does he... What? What did he see? Well, he watched his, you got to imagine, can you see the scene? He watches his newest missionary running into town. And he keeps watching, and it's not long till she comes back running again. And there is a crowd of men following her. And then what does Jesus say? Haven't you said it's yet four months until comes the harvest? He points up to the hillside. They're running down. They have their Samaritan white turbans on. Their white turbans are bobbing up and down as they run. And he says, I say to you, look up, lift up your eyes. The fields are already white for harvest. This is the harvest. What did Jesus feel in that moment? Do you know what he felt? Look at verse 36. He said, I've come. I'm on this mission, scattering and reaping and filled with what? Joy, rejoicing. It's like Jesus is saying, look at this. Look at this. One seed. Now here comes the harvest. Now, you can imagine Jesus is pointing to this crowd. He says, it's the harvest coming. What do they think's coming? 
Have you imagined what his disciples thought as this crowd of Samaritans is running toward them? Yeah, they're probably looking at each other thinking, I'm thinking Shoe Leather Express. What are you thinking? I'm thinking, I think, it's time to get out of Dodge, boys. What are you thinking? Jesus wanted them to see this was their mission. To do what he's just done. It's going to be a co-mission. What does he want these people to see? What does he want his disciples to see? Not Samaritans. He wants them to see human beings human beings. He doesn't want them to see the enemy. He doesn't want them to see the right or the left. He doesn't want them to see a political party charging them. He doesn't want them to see colors. He doesn't want them to see anything but to see what he sees, souls. Souls, image bearers of God, so deeply marred, not knowing that God so loves them. He has sent his son, God seeking these outcasts to be his own. And what does Jesus do? He provides in this greatest cultural division, so divided it makes America look like nothing. In the greatest political social division, Jesus provides unification. He brings them together. And he stays two days. And notice this. Verse 39. And many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you have said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Think of who is saying that. This is the savior of the world. These are the first human beings to say that. 30 some years earlier, some angels said it to some shepherds. The Savior of the world has been born. And the first people to say Jesus is the Savior of the world are the least likely people you would ever imagine to say that he is the Savior of the world. But they know it. And he is taken Jewish people and Samaritan people, those who are near and lost and those who are far away and lost, and he has made them into a band of brothers. Because all their differences are taken away in Christ.
He's the savior of the world. He's the only hope of the world, friends. He is the only hope of the U.S. And he's the only hope of U.S., us. He's our only hope. He's this nation's only hope. He's this world's only hope. And he's not changing the world by changing administrations. He's not changing the world by changing political makeup. He's not changing the world by shaking up things inside the beltway. Regardless if you think what happened on Tuesday or Tuesday night was great or whether you think it was awful, please hear this. That's not what Jesus is really about. He's about changing people really, completely, totally, forever by himself and taking the most divided people you could ever imagine and making them his brothers and sisters. Now that's what God wants us to take back into our world post-election. Remember, every year is A.D., the year of the Lord. Father, as we stand in your presence, and please all stand, I praise you and I bless your name that you are the God who seeks the outcast and you seek those who are close. You seek the prodigal sons and daughters and you seek the sons and daughters who are close to the father's house. But those who are the prodigals and those who are close to the house both need the father. And thank you that you have come to bring us to the Father. You have come to die the just for us, the unjust, that you might bring us to God. And oh Lord, may we go as instruments of your peace. May we go knowing that our mission is still the same, to be very intentional as your light bearers, your image bearers, and to be very relational to be proactive and personal and to share the message of truth and hope and grace and know that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever. Deliver us from anger, deliver us from factionalism, and make us peacemakers, just like you, Jesus. In your dear name I pray, the people of God said.